0: Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender.
1: And welcome to the show, everyone. Hope you are having a great day. And as you know, we are celebrating ADA Month it is july 23rd three days and we will be at the 29th anniversary of the signing of the americans with disabilities act 29 years and we still have sadly a very long way to go but first a special shout out to my good friend yoshiko dart yoshiko hope you're having a great day and to the 17 countries that listen to this show. I mean, that amazes me every time, even when I say it. But I've got to tell you, Ireland is rocking it. They, I not understand about this country, but it's wonderful. They have such a big listening audience. Thank you. But thank you to every country. I don't care if it's just one listener. It's still one listener. And... Hi Mark. Hi Mark has been the lead sponsor of this radio show for three years. And you know why? Because they care about people with disabilities. I just had lunch with Cindy Hunterfiend, the CEO of Allegheny General. And I'm going to tell you what another fabulous person that cares about the employment of people with disabilities. And we have like a rocking show today because we have Holly O'Donnell, the CEO at Baselon Center for Mental Health Law. We have Jennifer Mathis, who is the Deputy Legal Director and Director for Policy and Legal Advocacy and Eve Hill. How many times have I talked on this show about the great Eve Hill, who is leading disability and civil rights attorney at Brown Goldstein and Levy, but let me tell you, everyone knows Eve, and I'm, I'm really thrilled to have all of them on the show today, because I am a new board member of Basilon Center, and that makes me so proud, but we're going to start with Holly O'Donnell, the CEO. Holly, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Joyce.
1: Well, it is very exciting to have you as my guest today, um, but I, I want, for our listeners, I want to begin by you telling about your incredible background in education. When I read your bio, it was so impressive, um, and I also know you were honored by President Bush, and you were an appointee to the U.S. Department of Education. So let's start with you and tell us about your background.
2: Okay, great. Well, I'm thrilled to hear um, that Ireland has a lot of listeners with a last name like O'Donnell and to be here with my colleagues Jennifer Mathis and Eve Hill, and thanks to everyone for tuning in. Yes, I have spent the majority of my career in education, Like many educators, I started in the classroom. In fact, my first experience teaching was in the D.C. public Schools summer school program. I was teaching English to um, high school students, many of whom had just gotten to the United States. And actually, um, we were working in a non-air-conditioned building and our classroom was on the third floor. Today in D.C. feels much like those days. Even in the heat and with multiple first languages, learning happened. And to be clear, it wasn't the heat that motivated me to move into education policy a few years later. It was a commitment to making the education system work for every student. My first opportunity to work on this was as an appointee in the Office of the Secretary of Education. Many of you probably remember Secretary Riley uh, during the Clinton administration. We worked hard, and we got results that all Americans benefited from. A few years after leaving the administration, President Bush recognized our work um, at a nonprofit I was working at called BC Scores, which was youth development-focused. And we were recognized for teaching children how to get involved in their community to make change and creating paths for adults from all walks of life to get involved as volunteers in those student-led projects. So the theme of community has been a common thread throughout my career.
1: And you know what, Holly? I am so impressed uh, with your background and what you said. But I have a question. You have been so involved in education and i'm wondering you know what has this meant to you up to this point in your life you've done so much to help and impact so many people when it comes to education what what does that mean to you
2: well, oh, let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I grew up nine blocks from the Capitol here in Washington, D.C., with a mother who was the best kindergarten teacher and a father who came to D.C. to be general counsel to then Speaker uh, Tip O'Neill. So looking back on it, as I have many times, the importance of high-quality education for all children at all levels, in the classroom and in policymaking. It was like a family value, just like civic participation. And all of it was ingrained early for my brother and for me. So in terms of my dedication to education, I think it helps that I really do love to work with children um, and that I also just get energized working on positive policy changes that benefit the entire system. And, you know, having been in a career for over 20 years now, um, you start to really understand the importance of working for systems change. And you see, you know, steps forward, unfortunately sometimes steps back, but um, the the importance of staying focused um, is really what it means to me because you see, I mean, for me, seeing children that I taught Successful in the world now um, inspires me to keep working on changing systems so that they work for all people.
1: Well, I can't commend you more because uh, to me, teachers of America, I mean, what a great thing to be a teacher and uh, to inspire others to learn and to move forward so that that is wonderful what you've done and now here you are with the bazelon center for america in washington dc as the ceo which is so awesome so would you tell our listeners what the bazelon center is and what is the mission
3: of course i will
2: Um, I do like to tell anyone and everyone about the Baslon Center. Uh, Our full name is the Judge David L. Baslon Center for Mental Health Law, and our work advances and protects the civil rights of adults and children with mental illness or developmental disabilities. The center has been doing this work for over 45 years and is a leader in creating a society where Americans with mental disabilities live with autonomy, dignity, and opportunity in welcoming communities. And that requires support by law, policy, and practices that help people reach their full potential. You can learn more about the mission and our work at our website, which is uh, bazelon.org.
1: B A Z E L O N dot org. And while I'm on that subject, you know, this is so great because this is where my heart is right now. I mean, people with mental health issues are without a doubt experiencing such terrible stigma, which is preventing employment. Uh, and, and I mean, to me, this is like the something that not enough people are doing something about. And that is why I just think the, uh, you and your work at the Bazelon Center is so important. But you know what, folks, if you're listening right now and you're thinking, yes, I know so many people with depression or bipolar disorder or some type of uh, mental health issue It is wonderful what they're doing. But you know what? You can't do it without money. See, that's the thing. Everyone seems to think when you're a not-for-profit, it's totally different, you know, than a for-profit company. Well, the mission's different, of course. However, you still need money to operate. You know, when people will say to me, oh, I wish this disability organization. They need to do so much more in this area. Well, I tell them they'd be happy to, if they had enough money. So, you know what I'm getting here to, and that is basilon.org. Basilon.org, make a contribution. And you know what else? Tell everyone else you know. Tell everyone else you know. And with that, we're going to go to break. If you just joined us, we're talking to the CEO of Basilon Center, Holly O'Donnell a great, great staff person there, Jennifer Mathis, who we'll be talking to in a little bit, and Eve Hill, disability rights advocate. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
2: For those in leadership positions with corporations, governments, nonprofits, and educational institutions, please pay attention. Are you aware that 10 to 15 percent of your potential clients are unable to use your websites properly? At AudioEye, an advanced technology has been created that eliminates accessibility issues and levels the playing field for all. Make the Internet a meaningful resource for millions of more people. Go to audioi.com. More accessible, more usable, more people. Call on audioi today. Visit audioi.com.
0: At Highmark, we believe what
4: makes us different makes us better. Our differences broaden our perspectives and foster
0: diverse skills which complement each other, creating a stronger and more vibrant workforce. It's this belief that earned us recognition by the USBLN and the American Association
4: of People with Disabilities as a 2014 Disability Equality Index best place to work. So we'll continue to celebrate diverse individuals because inclusion benefits us all. To find out more, visit highmark.com.
0: You're listening to Disability Matters. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joyce Bender.
1: And welcome back to the show, everyone. We are talking to Holly O'Donnell, Jennifer Mathis, and Eve Hill about the Bazelon Center, and Eve, in addition to being a well-known civil rights advocate and attorney, is also on the board of the Bazelon Center. But I want to talk for a few minutes to Jennifer. Oh, do I love Jennifer. As a matter of fact, I told um, Holly that what made me want to get more and more involved with the Bazelon Center is Jennifer, who is just brilliant, a wonderful person. She's also involved with AAPD. I've known her for a long time, and I just think so highly of her. So, Jennifer, how did you first become involved with the Bazelon Center? And, oh, welcome to the show also. (laughs) Thank you, Joyce. Um,
3: So I came to the Baselon Center 20 years ago, um, 20 years ago last January, um, and I guess I, I came that route first um, through working with Kai Feldblum while I was in law school, and the ADA had just passed, and so um, it was a really exciting time in disability rights, and um, I once I got... Into disability rights, um, never got out and never wanted to get out um, and wanted to spend the rest of my life doing uh, disability rights law and so having worked for a couple of the protection and advocacy agencies for people with disabilities and um, having worked at a small civil rights Uh, law firm that focused on disability rights, we actually sent a letter one day to the Bazelon Center asking for uh, them to send us referrals. And I got a call from the Bazelon Center saying, hey, you know, would you like to come talk to us? And so uh, the Bazelon Center, of course, would have been my dream job. And at that time, the Supreme Court had just uh, taken the Olmstead case. And so um, that was how I spent the first six months of my time here was just working on Olmstead um, when it was in the Supreme Court. So uh, that's how I got to the Bazelon Center.
1: Well, how exciting is that? Um, and you certainly worked with someone, Feldblum, that was very involved with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, and, and before I asked you more about what the work you do there, it's not amazing the uh, anniversary was so recent for the Olmstead Act.
3: That's right. Yeah, we just had the 20th anniversary, June 22nd, of the Supreme Court's Olmstead decision. It's pretty exciting, just before the uh, ADA anniversary.
1: And for those of you that don't know, Jennifer, could you just take a couple minutes and tell our listeners what the Olmstead Act is, how that came to be? Sure. So... Olmstead
3: was a Supreme Court decision that um, came down in 1999, and it interpreted the Americans with Disabilities Act. And what the Supreme Court said was that it is a form of discrimination covered by the ADA to needlessly institutionalize people with disabilities. And that was obviously a very significant issue, and there was a lot of history behind the EDA um, that focused on institutionalization and how people with disabilities were segregated and isolated, um, and it was a very big deal when the Supreme Court affirmed that In fact, that is a kind of discrimination, and the ADA can be used to address that kind of discrimination when states are not administering their services to people with disabilities in the most integrated setting appropriate. Um, So sometimes that decision is called the Brown versus Board of Ed of the disability community. Very significant case.
1: Yes, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go, don't we? Absolutely, and that's a lot of our work. Actually, focuses on
3: Olmstead and community integration for people with disabilities. So we're still uh, we're still in the process of trying to get states to implement the Olmstead decision. And there's you know there's a lot of work to go to uh, reach compliance in most places.
1: Now, why is that, Jennifer? I mean, at Baseline, you work you work in advocacy but you also uh, are involved in a lot of briefs. I should ask you that first. What do you do the most, or, or is it both?
3: Yeah, well, I actually do everything. I do um, policy advocacy, and I also do litigation. We actually made a decision at some point that we were going to um, really – uh, merge our our policy and, and legal work a little bit better, a little bit more. Um, and so um, I sort of, that's why my title is Director of Policy and Legal Advocacy, because I'm bridging those two. Um, and our work all is very much of a piece, whether it's sort of through uh, working with Congress or working with the executive branch agencies or in the courts to, uh, promote autonomy and dignity and choice and community integration for people with disabilities, um, people with mental health disabilities particularly. So um, I do everything, and I would say overall we probably spend maybe a little bit more of our time doing litigation, um, maybe 60-40, something like that, but we follow the opportunities. So it really depends on what's happening, what the opportunities are um, at any given time, what we need to fight back against. And so, you know, sometimes we have a lot of opportunities within uh, executive branch agencies, sometimes in Congress, sometimes both. Um, Sometimes we have a lot of things we need to fight back on. So when uh, we were fighting to preserve the Affordable Care Act and to preserve Medicaid as we know it... um, Uh, to preserve the ADA, um, we spent more time doing policy work. I spent more of my time doing policy work. When we were actually amending the ADA to do the ADA Amendments Act, I spent an awful lot of my time doing that. And so, um, really, we go wherever we feel like, uh, you know, we can achieve the most. And so, um, I think that's the... Uh, benefit or the beauty of being at a place that uh, is able to do both policy and litigation and each shapes each other, actually.
1: Uh, Jennifer is my go-to person. Anytime I have a question that in any way relates to uh, people with psychiatric disabilities, mental health issues, she is the person I call because uh, we talk about this frequently but the stigma toward People with mental health issues is worse. Instead of it getting better, it is worse in some ways. And uh, and I think Jennifer, you'll agree that that is a key obstacle to employment. I think it's it's the
3: Uh, The biggest obstacle to uh, pretty much everything that we're trying to achieve, the biggest obstacle to employment, um, biggest obstacle to achieving an equal education, biggest obstacle to getting community integration is that, yeah, intense levels of prejudice. And I think there's sort of, there's prejudice, there's stigma, I think, with, uh, you know, people with disabilities generally. There's perceptions that people are not capable. Um, you know unfounded assumptions that people are incapable, and with mental health, I think there 's sort of an extra layer of fear and and you know false associations with violence and um, you 're right, it is particularly uh, damaging in the in the area of employment and attitudinal barriers have been probably one of the biggest um,
1: uh, reasons why it 's hard for people to get work and that is why people that are working that have mental health issues will never disclose, as with many other disabilities. But they know, you know, they know that stigma exists and fear how they will be treated differently. And I want to tell you, if you're listening to this show as a business, that is so not true. I have hired and found employment for people with different mental health issues including schizophrenia who are great performers and are doing a great job uh, but it is this lack of education it, it is so unfounded the things people believe but that's because that is why the work at Bazelon Center is so important and if you just tuned in and want to make a donation that's basilon.org Bazelon.org go and make a uh, contribution and tell everyone you know and if you're listening to this show on demand versus live I hope you will share this podcast because the more people that know the more people will get involved and with that I want to oh I'm so excited to have Eve Hill as guest today I've had her on before, but it is always a pleasure to talk to Eve Hill. How are you, Eve? I'm great, Joyce. I'm so happy to be on. Well, I tell, and Eve is a board member uh, on Baslon. another reason that I uh, wanted to join the board because of Eve. If you don't know, Eve is a major disability rights leader and attorney. And I tell her this story all the time. She was at the White House speaking for the Department of Justice uh, during the Obama administration. And she was saying that uh, you're saying you want to employ people with disabilities. Well, if your website is not accessible, how are you going to hire anyone? I tell that story all the time. Of course, she said many other very profound things, but <laughs> Eve, before we, I ask you this question about Basilon, would you mind sharing with our listeners what you're doing today? So today, I I left the Justice Department in 2017, and I joined
4: the law firm of Brown, Goldstein, and Levy, which is a Baltimore-based law firm that does a great deal of civil rights work, including disability rights work. And I uh, took over the leadership of the disability rights practice, and now I work in D.C. and Baltimore, and actually all across the country, doing litigation, policy work, and consulting on disability rights issues. So now I get to not just Sue people for doing wrong, but also help people do right.
1: <laughs> well, how would people reach you? Um, they, can, they can
4: contact me by email. It's very simple, ehill at browngold.com. That's brown like the color and gold like the color.
1: Wow, that's a good way to remember it. Eve Hill at browngold.com. Is that right?
4: E-H-I-L-L. E-H-I-L-L.
1: Hill at com. Okay. Uh, we I've got it. a lot of emails yeah, because now. Because if you need any <laughs> type of consulting, she is expert in this area. Uh, well, Eve, the Bazelon Center and Partners reached a groundbreaking settlement with the state of Ohio in a special education class action lawsuit. Would you mind explaining this settlement to our listeners just as an example of the great things the Bazelon Center does? Sure. Uh, the center filed uh, a class action
4: on behalf of public school students in Ohio challenging the school's decisions basically around funding of special education services. They set the budget based on their own desire to cut expenses and not on student needs. And then they didn't even fund all that, the money that they said they would provide. And then they didn't adjust for inflation and they left out a bunch of special education related services, things like behavioral interventions and physical therapy and transition services and assistive technology. So as a result, students with disabilities across the state are not getting a free, appropriate public education, which is required by the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. In 2018, they reached a settlement agreement that over five years is going to substantially improve education, test scores, and inclusion of students with disabilities in 11 districts that had the lowest academic outcomes and the highest segregation for students with disabilities. They're going to improve literacy and math, provide supports for students with disabilities and their teachers, provide behavioral supports, and help students transition from high school to adult life, including things like behavioral interventions, universal design for learning, and assistive technology. And what I loved about it is it sets high educational goals and achievement goals and holds schools accountable for their, for their work and for the outcomes of their work in special education. So it doesn't just say to the schools, well, you're going to educate these special kids, and we don't care whether they meet goals. We do care. They can meet the goals. And this is, this is sort of why I joined the Baselon Center Board, because this is an example of the kind of work the center does really thoughtful, systemic change. So they don't just represent a single student or even a single disability. They take on these problems that are big, the whole school district, the whole state's uh, system of special education. And then they attack the heart of the problem, not the symptom, and they use all the tools, litigation, policy, education, organizing, to really solve it.
1: Oh, that was awesome. Awesome. And that that is great. The result because uh, when you were talking, so all I could think about is that how many schools when I meet high school students with disabilities, and it could be autism, learning disability, you know, wheelchair, mental health, mm-hmm. whatever it is. How many times do these students get labeled, and then not? Really, not teaching them. You know what I mean? Not doing what you just said, raising the bar. The bar is not raised. And then I meet them and they can't read or write. Mm -hmm. I really just think I just hate that so much. I think that is so great what you said uh, about having them raise the bar on education. Do you know what I mean, Eve? Absolutely, and part of this,
4: the settlement is about how the schools will plan to meet the needs of their students with disabilities, so it's not... You're going to fail if you just wait for a student to show up and they say, hmm, I wonder what we should do. Oh, we don't have that in the budget. Oh, we don't know how to do that. So you're waiting an entire semester while the school tries to figure it out, when really you could incorporate universal design principles, have, have technology that's accessible and usable by everybody, have uh, staff ready to, uh, to respond appropriately to different behaviors. But without that kind of planning, the school is setting the students back, and then too often kicking them out when they don't perform well.
1: Yeah, that's right. That is right. Eve, when did you join the board? 2017. <laughs> and was it mainly uh, seeing the work that needed to be done at Bazelon, the example you just gave, is that what attracted you to join?
4: Oh yeah, I've known the Baselon Center for a long time, long, long time, because I've been doing this for a long time, and I've always been impressed that at how brave the Baselon Center is, because they take on these hard issues. I'm sure they've been told hundreds of times, oh, you're fighting with windmills. But they're not. These things can be solved, and the Baselon Center is really smart, and really strategic, and really thoughtful and brave, and that's what I'm looking for in in places that I want to, you know, really contribute to.
1: Yeah, well, that's no surprise to me. Uh, Holly, I wanted to ask you, you heard, you know, when we were talking to uh, Jennifer about the stigma and how it impacts so many things, but one of those things is employment, and the unemployment rate is already double that of people without disabilities, but it is very high for people with mental health disabilities. Um, why do you think that is?
2: Well, I think, Joyce, it's important to be honest about what we were talking about before. The stigma and the prejudice are one of the most significant reasons for the high unemployment rate. Um, and. You know, that's true of people with all disabilities, like you said, but there's this extra layer um, of not just viewing people as incompetent, but actually being fearful of them, being uncomfortable around them. Um, And so I think that's the number one reason. But I I also think it's important to know that many people – Um, need reasonable accommodations on the job that just aren't provided to them. And one thing that really struck me when I learned it from Jennifer um, was that people with the most significant mental health disabilities need supported employment services. But those services are few and far between. In fact, less than 2%, and I'm going to say that again, less than 2%, Of people in the public mental health system, get them nationwide.
1: Wow, that's that's terrible.
2: Awful. And so those are, you know, the three top reasons um, why I think um, and we think that the unemployment rate is so high.
1: Uh, That is so shocking. That figure that you gave, Um, Eve. I want to know your opinion but here I go you know I am going to make a statement that may get me in trouble or may seem is controversial but hey the truth is the truth I have told Jennifer Eve several times that when there is a mass shooting the first thing you hear when they're talking about gun control which you know To me is good But when they're talking about The first thing they say is And let's get those guns away From people with mental illness People with mental illness Should not have these guns Now, of course I feel the same for all people But my point is This has accelerated The stigma That is already there Has turned into this Not only this fear, but justification in saying, well, you know, Joyce, you know, with everything going on, we have to be careful. I mean, do you think, Eve, that that is also having an impact?
4: It's so stunningly wrong. The people who committed mass shootings didn't have diagnosed mental health conditions over and over again. They were just mad. They were just not thinking rationally. They were just mad. And... The the idea that the first people we should take guns away from or anything else, quite honestly, we take law uh, bar licenses away from people based on mental health conditions, too. Having rules like that stops people from getting treatment for mental health conditions. You now won't go forward and get treatment because then... The government will take things away from you, will take away your license to practice or your license to work, will take away your uh, family, will take away your guns. That's not the way either to make us more protective because protected because now more people with undiagnosed anything, anger, I think, will have guns, but we will st- be stopping people from getting treatment and services. That can let them be completely productive and contribute to our communities.
1: And I agree with you. Uh, Jennifer, I've talked to you about this before. Haven't you also seen this? I mean, this increase of fear or stigma, whatever you want to say, when there is a mass shooting and the first thing you hear about is mental illness? Yes, we used to joke that uh it
3: was ironic that uh often the news headlines would say person doesn't have mental illness um <laughs> in the mass shooting. But um yeah, I it's it's just it's very frustrating because people with mental illnesses account for something like four percent of gun violence and yet are blamed for gun violence um predominantly and you know, more than anyone else and um, that happens, I think, across the political spectrum too. It's it's just a matter of of ignorance of the, the facts, and uh, I think that people with mental illnesses have become, a, you know, as a sort of a scapegoat uh, when you know people can't get. Things done um, to address the root causes of gun violence, um, you know, people with mental illnesses become sort of the focus. Um, and that has had an impact, um, you know, not just on uh, gun violence prevention efforts and safety, but on employment, as you say, and on, you know, many other issues. Because when you think that people with psychiatric disabilities are violent, then You know, that means that people don't want them in their workplaces. They don't want them as their neighbors. They don't want them in their schools. And, you know, that has an enormous impact on people's lives.
1: Yes, and that is well said because that is what I hear. Um, And so if you're listening, that's not true. It really is so terrible that that has been generalized. So um, I hope you tell other people that that also is a myth. Okay, so Holly, you are doing a lot at the Bazelon Center. What are some of the projects you're working on now?
3: So
2: you are correct. We are doing um, a lot of projects and our projects share the same common goal of providing people with mental disabilities a meaningful life in the community. It's an effort to maintain progress that we've made over the past 50 years, uh, and we're doing that a lot through advocacy and through our coalition work. And it's going to take large coalitions. Um, but we're also working on legal adv- advocacy projects in education, employment, voting rights, immigration, and um, pr- perhaps most importantly, the system reform in criminal justice, mental health systems, and foster care. You know. Um, people can go very in-depth, Jennifer and um, Eve can, on each of these projects, and um, you can also look on our website for them. But I'll also add, like you did earlier in the show, that we're a nonprofit, and we're always working to raise money and to get people involved in the center so that we can in- advance this important work faster. And so that's also an important project that we continue to work on.
1: Well, again, if you just joined us, what I was saying earlier in the show, so often I will hear people say, it doesn't matter who the organization is, oh, it's so great what they do, and sometimes you'll hear people with disabilities say, they need to do that more, they they need to do more programs like this, and yeah, they can if they have more money. You know, I, I have to stress to you. If you want to see changes, for example, in the area we're talking about, people with mental health issues, well, you need money to have programs. So I hope you will consider basilon.org making a contribution. And as I said earlier, if you're listening to this on demand to the podcast, not only make a contribution, but share this with other people. Tell them about the Bazelon Center, because we can't help others without your help. Uh, Holly, what percentage of people with mental health disabilities are incarcerated? Uh, I'm asking you this because how many times at civil rights events I've been at have people talked about this high percentage, and what is the Bazelon doing in that area?
2: Yeah, I I mean, we all know that mass incarceration in the United States is a huge problem. I'm not sure there is an accurate number for the percent of people with mental health disabilities who are incarcerated, but the numbers that have been studied and reported that are are approximately 16 to 24 percent of people in jails and prisons have a serious mental illness. And many or most are there as a result of the unavailability of community-based mental health services, which is one of the projects that we, I said in the previous question that we're working on in terms of system reform. But in line with the Baselon Center's expertise, we are doing five main activities, um, first, Developing litigation, challenging the lack of services to divert people with psych disabilities from jail. Diversion is hugely important. Number two, we're working with jurisdictions across the country to help them develop strategies to reduce incarceration of people with psych disabilities. This work is largely funded, um, the work that we're doing by the MacArthur Foundation through its Safety Justice Challenge Program. Number three, we're working with advocates to promote the development of community-based services and diversion programs to reduce incarceration for people with mental illness, especially people of color. Ford Foundation has given us um, funding to support this work. We're working on a model law for jurisdictions, this is number four, that are interested in reducing incarceration of people with mental illness. And the fifth, um, the center spent a lot of time advocating with Department of Justice and uh, the Obama administration to issue guidance to address these issues.
1: Wow. So those are the five main areas of work. Go ahead. I was just saying those are the five main areas of work. Wow, well, that's a lot of work. Jennifer and Eve, have have you seen... Uh, An increase over the past several years, I'll ask you first, Eve, have you seen an increase in your opinion of the incarceration of people with mental health uh, disabilities?
4: Absolutely, um, it's a, it's a new form, or not even a new form, but an emerging and growing form of institutionalization. So we used to keep people with disabilities in institutions, psychiatric institutions, and others, and and we stopped doing that because it wasn't appropriate. It wasn't necessary to institutionalize people, and it was a violation of their civil rights under the ADA and other federal laws. And now. But you have to also provide the community-based mental health and substance abuse services in their communities. Otherwise, these people get arrested for simply not having anywhere to live or simply not being able to get treatment. And they end up in incarcerated at disproportionate uh, rates, as Holly mentioned, and also, according to the Washington Post, killed by police at absolutely stunning rates. So this bringing together... The lack of community-based services, the stigma and fear about people with mental health conditions, and guns uh, in the hands of police is a terrible recipe—not just for killing people, but also for incarcerating people and providing them so-called treatment in the most expensive and least effective way in prison or jail.
1: Oh, is it? That is so terrible. Uh, Jennifer, what do you think about it?
3: Um, well, I would just say, I mean, what you've said is exactly right. I think that, um, you know, we, uh, we've we seen this happen over, uh, you know, a number of years. I think as community-based mental health services are cut, um, you know, people... Um, do find themselves often swept up into the criminal justice system. People cycle between uh, the streets and uh, psychiatric uh, hospitals and emergency rooms and shelters and jails. And so, um, you know, that cycle um, can be interrupted. And, you know, if we only provided the community-based services that people need, uh, to live successful lives, and we can serve people with uh, even the most significant mental health disabilities. Um, sometimes, I just want to point out, people sometimes, I think, mm-hmm. focus in the wrong place when they look at incarceration of people with psychiatric disabilities and think the solution is that we just need to build more psychiatric hospitals, and, you know, our view and I think the facts are that um you know that's not a long term solution, that's not a good solution, that just reinstitutionalizing people is not the answer and certainly then, you know, if you don't have a community based service system to serve people, you know, people are just gonna come right back into the hospital or the jail, um, you know, when you discharge them because you're not giving them what the the tools they need to live a successful life in the community.
1: Well, hopefully, we're going to see that change. I mean, this show is going so fast that we are almost at the end of the show. How could that be possible? Um, <laughs> I want to say something before I ask this last question to Holly, Eve, and Jennifer. Uh, and that would be don't forget basilon.org. Make a contribution today. So, uh, Holly, what message do you want to leave with our listeners?
2: Thanks, Joyce. Um, My message is that all of us know a person with a mental disability, that right now many of their rights are in jeopardy during these current times, so we need more people to get involved in making sure that they can live their best lives. We cannot let 50 years of progress roll back, and we need you to join us in this work. The best ways to visit our website, you can find me, my email, and email me directly, and I look forward to the listeners joining the Baslon Center to advance the rights of people with mental disabilities.
1: And we will. That is, and thank you for your leadership, Holly. Uh, Jennifer, what about you? What message do you want to leave?
3: So I would just say that because it's now July, um, which is ADA month, um, I just want to emphasize that mental health um, is part of disability rights, should be treated that way. Um, often people forget that and they think of mental health as Somehow separate, um, and we're not separate. Um, uh, you know, people often say May is mental health month. I always say it should be July, um, and that our goals should be the same as those of the disability rights movement: um, community integration and inclusion, full participation in society, self-determination, equal treatment, choice, dignity, and autonomy. Yeah,
1: boy, that's a that's a, that is right. Mental health month is. ADA month. Eve, how about you?
4: Well, I guess my message is challenge your assumptions. As Holly said, we all know somebody with a disability, but knowing someone has a disability means you don't know anything about them and what they can do. And employing people with disabilities is good business. Don't do it because you have to, do it because you really want diversity and the, all the benefits that diversity brings.
1: Oh, that is so true. I always tell people not charity, Return on investment. And mm-hmm. I want to remind you, businesses, when you say, oh, I don't want to hire people with disabilities, you, especially mental health disabilities, you already have. Right. They're working for you right now. It's just they haven't told you. So, again, basiloncenter.org. Eve, Jennifer, and Holly, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is ADA, week July 26th. So you know what the quote has to be, don't you? Lead on, lead on no matter what, said the great, late Justin Dart Jr. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com.